What a foretaste of deliverance and how unwavering our hope is because of that. What glorious truths we get to sing about. What a blessing to be able to do so. And and now we get to turn our attention to God's word and let God address us this morning. We've been going through Daniel. So if you have your copy of God's word, take it and turn with me to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. It was in July of 2018 that 12 boys on a soccer team between the ages of 11 to 16, along with their 25-year-old coach, got stuck in a cave in northern Thailand. They went in at the end of June after a soccer match. They wanted to have fun together. It was one of the boys' birthday, and they wanted to celebrate. And while they were in the cave, just journeying and touring the cave, there was a monsoon, and the monsoon rains poured down trapping them in the cave, flooding the cave in its various chambers. as nine chambers total. And so the boys had to go all the way back to the ninth chamber with the flood waters rising all the way back to them. They were wondering if they would get out. They were wondering how long they would have to be there. They were wondering if anyone would be able to come rescue them, if anyone even knew that they were there. My wife, my wife and I watched a docuseries on this just stunning story. I don't know if you remember the account from 2018, but we were watching this stunning and harrowing story. It's one of those stories that if you didn't know that it was true, you would definitely think it was made up because of the lengths that they had to go to attempt this rescue. It is just staggering. I told my wife as we were watching it, it's, it's like Apollo 13, but for caves and scuba diving because every time they have a solution to try and rescue these boys, they find out that their solution isn't going to work because of another problem. And the thing that they need to fix that problem isn't real. It's not even invented. And so they have to figure out how to make it work to save these 13 lives. The boys were stuck in the cave for 18 days. These 12 boys and their coach stuck in the cave for 18 days And one of the thoughts that kept coming to my mind as I was watching this, specifically as we've been studying Daniel, is what must they have been thinking, similar to what must Daniel have been thinking, stuck in a cave? The lion's den is really a cave. It's very interesting the the way that the docuseries portrayed these boys struggling, obviously with fear, panic, then maybe some hope, maybe some comfort. They're struggling to figure out, are we going to make it out? Are we going to be able to escape? Are we going to die here? And then, of course, all of the if-onlys. The coach taking it upon himself. If only I had said no, that we're not going to go to this cave to hike into it. If only we had stayed a little while longer, we would have seen the rains. We wouldn't have gone in if we had stayed outside of the cave. It all made me think of our brother Daniel, stuck in a cave, not 18 days, but one night. This cave didn't have water as his main enemy, but lions. And this cave wasn't housing innocent hikers who just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. Instead, this cave was housing someone who is considered an enemy of the state being thrown in to be executed. It wasn't by accident that Daniel wound up in this cave. It was by deliberate choice. What must he have been thinking in the darkness of that cave? What must he have been 
pondering, all of the if-onlys. If only I had just stayed away from the window. If only I had just changed the prayer habits that I had. Last week, we looked at three main ways that Daniel exemplifies for us what it means to live as aliens and strangers in this world. If we're going to make a difference to be an impact in this world, to be a lighthouse set on a hill that people would see our good works and they would glorify our Father in heaven, number one, we need to honor God in how we live differently than the world. Number two, we need to understand that the world's going to hate us. They always have, they always will. And number three, we need to Determine in our hearts now that we will worship God though it will cost us. This morning we will see uh, two final realities of how we are to live life as aliens and strangers in this fallen world. As we look at Daniel's amazing testimony in the lion's den. Let's read in Daniel chapter 6 verses 16 through 28. Daniel chapter 6 verses 16 through 28. Then the king said the word, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king answered and said to Daniel, your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself save you. And a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. And then the king went off to his palace. Spent the night fasting. No entertainment was brought before him. And his sleep fled from him. Then the king arose at dawn at the break of day and hurriedly went to the lion's den. And when he had come near the the den to Daniel, he cried out with a, a troubled voice. The king answered and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to save you from the lions. Then Daniel spoke to the king. O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before him. And also toward you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was greatly pleased and said for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no harm whatsoever was found on him because he had believed in his God. The king then said the word, and they brought those men who had brought charges against Daniel, and they cast them, their children, and their wives into the lion's den. And they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all of their bones. Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue who are inhabiting all the land, may your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and be in dread before the God of Daniel, because he is the living God and endures forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be until the end. He saves and delivers and does signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the kingdom of Darius and in the kingdom of Cyrus the Persian. Let's pray together. Father, these words that are familiar, this this account that's familiar to us is just filled with realities that 
truly are bottomless. No matter what we know about this story, we don't know all of it. We will spend eternity diving deeper into the glories that are found here. But for our time this morning, Father, I pray that you would be gracious to us. Be merciful. It's not based off of anything that we have to offer you that we're asking this. It's not based off of anything that is inside of us, anything that we could do, anything that we have done. We come to you like that Syrophoenician woman in the Gospel of Mark, begging for you to work, not on the basis of our goodness, but on the basis of your goodness. We just want crumbs that would fall from the table, crumbs of your glory that we can enjoy and be satisfied by, because even just the spill over of your glory, even just a tiny morsel of who you are, will satisfy us infinitely. So Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts to put steel into our spine for the days ahead, that we would know how to navigate these waters that we are involved in, that we are currently wading through, but that we would do so with hope, with courage, with comfort, with assurance, with compassion, with grace, that we would be like Daniel, and most importantly, that we would be like you, Daniel's God. Holy Spirit, open our eyes now to behold wonderful things from your law. Teach us and show us Christ. We pray in his name for his glory. Amen. These amazing verses give us two final realities. So if you're taking notes from what we did last week, we saw three realities of how to live as aliens and strangers. We're going to see two more, so you could number them four and five if you want, because it's five total in this whole chapter. Uh, We'll just take them one at a time as we go through. But again, if we are going to live as aliens and strangers in this world in a way that shows forth Christ, shows forth our Savior as better than anything this world has to offer, we must, number one, honor God and how we live differently than the world. Number two, understand that the world's going to hate us. Number three, worship God even though it's going to cost us. And then for our time this morning, let's add a fourth to that, or it's number one for our time this morning. Trust in God's deliverance however he sees fit. If we're going to live differently than the world, we must trust in God's deliverance however he sees fit to do that. Whether that's temporal deliverance Whether that's eternal deliverance, we need to trust God to be the deliverer in every second of our daily living. This is verses 16 through 24. The king said the word and Daniel is brought in. Maybe he's bound, hands behind his back, getting ready to be thrown into the lion's den. Uh, Lion's den. The Babylonians, before Persia took over, the Babylonians, they loved the image of lions. In fact, that's the image that God gives to Daniel representing the kingdom of Babylon that we're going to look at in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, Babylon is represented as a lion with wings. And uh, lo and behold, that is an image that we see over and over and over again in Babylon. We actually have uh, excavated the Ishtar Gate, which was a gate that led right into the main portion of the city of Babylon. And on that gate, there are 120 different lions with wings attached to them. Daniel would have walked in and out of those gates hundreds of times, if not thousands of times during his time in Babylon. And now Persia has taken over, so he knows that this is something that was a reality for Babylon, and Persia has just taken it and owned it as their own. Lions are magnificent, they're to be feared, and we're going to use them to our advantage by making a den of lions that had divisions in it so you could feed them, and then you could open that division and bring them out and have them eat Uh, your prisoner that you wanted executed, and then close that division, clean up the cage, open that division, and move the lions back out. 
It was a cave. It was a dwelling place uh, underneath the earth. And they would have a wall in the side of it that they could go through to, to get in, to tunnel themselves into it. And just think about Daniel. We, we have to stop here because I, I want to put ourselves in the place of Daniel as he's being led away to execution. What would you think as you're being led away to be thrown into the lion's den? How easy would it be to be second-guessing yourself? All of the if-onlys that you could be thinking about. Think about Daniel's excuses that he could have made. His, his future was incredibly bright. Remember, he's going to be put second in command over all of Persia. He could have easily said, you know what, in order to stay alive so that I can make myself that much more of an impact and influence in Persia, I want to make sure that I don't do something that will get me killed. He could have made so many excuses, but he didn't. He just kept on doing what he normally did. He also could have gone the route of, as we said last week, just kind of sticking it to the man, right? I'm going to make a point and I'm going to defy you in, in the most public display possible. He doesn't do that. I don't think he's being purposely defiant in what he's doing. I don't think he's, you know, trying to have some civil disobedience or some demonstration, look at me. No, he's just doing what he's always done. He knows that if he doesn't pray the way that he's always prayed, if he changes it up, which I don't think would have been wrong at all, but if he changes it up at all, the enemies of God that hated him would have said, oh, I see, when it's dangerous, your relationship with God changes. And so Daniel just stays the course. And I just want to bring out two observations about Daniel's staying the course. Two observations that I think are application points for our lives. We talked about one of these last week. We didn't talk about the other one. Number one, Daniel's prayer was disciplined and regular. It was disciplined and regular. And just think about this. Remember what Daniel was in charge of. 120 other governors. This man is a busy man. I think we often think of prayer, devoted prayer, regular prayer, disciplined prayer, being for monks only, right? People that are full-time prayers. And busy people like ourselves, we'll fit it in whenever we can. We'll just do it spontaneously, as often as we're able. Daniel's a busy guy. He's busy, and because he knows that he needs God in all of his busyness... He sets, a tie, sets aside time for prayer. It's regular. It's disciplined. He doesn't just happen upon it. We talked about this briefly last week, but my question to us is, do you have a disciplined set time for when you pray? Do you have a set time? He had three times throughout the day when he prayed. Do you have a disciplined set time for when you pray? And I think... Modern evangelicalism, especially Western modern evangelicalism, will instantly say no because I don't want to be legalistic. I don't want to be legalistic. People fear legalism and therefore they do not set up disciplines for themselves. But I just want to remind you, discipline does not equal legalism. Discipline isn't legalistic. You can turn it into that for sure. But just because that's a problem that could happen doesn't mean you take away the disciplines. I love the way John Piper says it. It's a great example. He uses it in a bunch of different places. There are two types of people in the world. There's jellyfish and there's dolphins. Okay? There's jellyfish and there's dolphins. Jellyfish look like they're free. They just float around. They never work hard. They just relax. They just sit there. And it looks like they can go wherever they want to go. But they can't. They're slaves to the current of the water, and they go wherever their circumstances and surroundings take them. 
Dolphins work hard. In fact, it might even look like they're struggling when they're swimming. They're expending way more energy than you and I would ever want to. They move their tail quickly. They change directions quickly. They attack. They seem to work tirelessly. But because of their difficulty and their discipline, they're never slaves to their circumstances. They can move wherever they want to move. So too with our disciplines. If we say, you know what, I'm just going to let the Lord allow for time in my schedule. And wherever there's time to pray, that's where I'm going to pray. You're a spiritual jellyfish. You're just being moved around by your daily routine and your daily culture and your daily circumstances and surroundings. And you'll pray only if and when it's possible in your schedule. Instead of being like a dolphin, be focused, be pointed, be directed, be disciplined. Be like Daniel. Secondly, for Daniel, prayer was more precious than life itself. We looked at this last week. He tells the governors, in effect, you'll have to take my life if you want to take my prayer. This has to mean that for Daniel, it's more important than life. Prayer is more important than life. Daniel would rather pray than save his life. Not praying is, worse, is a worse prospect to Daniel than being eaten by lions. It would be more serious to be prayerless than to be lifeless. And as he makes that decision, I don't think that he knew that he'd be delivered any more than Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. God can deliver me if he chooses to, but even if he doesn't, I'm still not going to bow the knee. I will give up my life before I give up my praying. And because of that decision, verse 16, the king brings him in, casts him into the lion's den, and says to Daniel, your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself save you. This could either be a statement or a prayer, but notice that what is the most powerful witness to Daniel, or from Daniel to Darius, is Daniel's consistent living. You constantly serve him. Notice how he brings that up twice in what he says about Daniel. I see your constant service to Yahweh. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't open our mouths and share the gospel. We have to. But the gospel message finds its foundation in a consistent life that lives a long line of obedience before the Lord. And so Darius says, either a statement or a prayer, your God whom you constantly serve will save you. Could be a prayer. Uh, I I think maybe it is because the king isn't totally confident that this is going to happen. I think he may be praying, may your God who you constantly serve save you. Because remember, he runs the next morning to see if that actually took place. He's not entirely confident that Daniel is going to be alive. But it also could be a statement because he has some sense of confidence that something is special about Daniel and that he would be saved by his God. It's very interesting because he's saying something that's almost identical to Daniel's three friends in chapter 3, which was decades ago at this point. He's saying, may God save you. Just like they said, our God will save us. And so as he's being thrown into the lion's den, just picture Daniel being cast into the lion's den and hearing these words, may your God deliver you. Just just picture Darius at the top there. May your God deliver you. And Daniel's saying, thanks. (laughs) That's the hope, that's the wish. In essence, what Darius is saying is, I did my best. I tried as hard as I could, but I couldn't save you, so I'm leaving it up to God. May God save you. Verse 17, a stone is brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king seals it with his own signet ring so that nothing could, could be changed with regard to Daniel. 
It's very interesting that they're concerned that an 80-year-old man is going to rock climb his way out of this cave. Uh, they just want to make sure that he's stuck inside there. And the king, verse 18, goes off to his palace. And you would expect the lion's den to be a dangerous place and the palace to be the safest place, but it's opposite. The palace is a place of pure anxiety and worry, while the lion's den is a place of pure peace. And it says that the, the king's sleep fled away from him. It ran away quickly. And he doesn't even want any entertainment brought before him. He doesn't eat While he's fasting, the irony is the lions are fasting as well. They're just absolutely caught up in this story. Obviously, we know how this ends. But for a first-time reader of this account, I think Daniel is purposely writing with a little bit of suspense here. We're in Darius' sandals. What's going to happen? I hope that you'll be saved. He goes home nervous, anxious. What's going to happen? We don't know if we're reading this for the very first time. Just like Darius doesn't know. That's why, verse 19, he arises at dawn at the very break of day and hurriedly he runs to the lion's den. And when he had come near the den, he cried out with a troubled voice. Troubled, that's struggling, that's sad. There's nervousness in this, there's anxiety. You can hear the quiver in his voice, maybe choking back tears. I hope you're alive. And he says, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you constantly serve, been able to save you from the lion. So again, you constantly serve. That's your greatest testimony. You just keep obeying him, following him, loving him. And notice he says, Daniel, servant of the living God. Daniel has so testified on Yahweh's behalf that King Darius knows God is alive and well. So Darius says, has God saved you? What would your answer be if you were Daniel? My answer would be, I'll tell you when you get me out of here, right? Get me out now. Hurry up and get me out, and we can talk all about it when I'm away from these lions. But not Daniel. Look at his calm. Free from fear and anxiety, he just simply says, O king, live forever. Notice he has no ill will towards Darius. One commentator says, He thus displayed his willingness to be subject to this man, even though Darius had been instrumental in being in his being in the den. So Daniel knew that the law came from Darius himself, and yet he still treats him with respect, kindness, and honor. He says, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before him, and also toward you, O king, I have done no harm. I, I just find this verse shocking for a number of reasons. Number one, the, the, the lions don't eat Daniel. That's shocking. Uh, Darius didn't eat that night. The lions didn't eat that night. Everyone's hungry in the morning. I find it shocking that this is all that's said. There's nothing else given to us about what happened in this den. I have so many questions for Daniel. I have so many questions. What was going on? What did it look like? What happened? What did you talk about? What's going on? Tell me. We got more information in chapter 3 about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We have more information in chapter 6 about what the king was doing that night. Tell us, Daniel. I want to know more. 
How strange that Daniel, who is in the lion's den and writing this, tells us more about what's happening outside of the den than what's happening inside of the den. But I think that's the point. The point is, this is supernatural, but it's not sensational. Daniel doesn't say, look at how sensational this was, and he tells this crazy story. He just says, God delivered me. In the apocryphal tale of Daniel, Bell, and the snake, which is written in the 2nd or 1st century B.C., it says that in this story, Habakkuk is actually transported from Judea into the lion's den and has a pot of stew and bread for Daniel to eat. That's sensational. It's also not true. It's, not, it's a made-up story. That's sensational. What Daniel says is just supernatural. This is what happened. God saved me. Now let me get out. He's proving to us that the whole point of this is not Daniel in the lion's den. It's the lions in God's den. God owns this den. Notice he says that the angel, my God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouths. He sent the angel. Most likely, most commentators say that this is the angel of the Lord, the same angel that showed up in the fiery furnace. Imagine that conversation. This is the very Messiah. If it is the angel of the Lord, that's Jesus. That's the Messiah. That's the very Messiah that Daniel is going to write about in Daniel chapter 9. This is his fiery furnace moment. In children's books, it always shows Daniel just standing there happy or sleeping in the lion's den, just curled up next to a lion, just putting his head on a lion. And I get it. That's a great way to depict it. But I I just don't know if he would have slept that much at all. If Jesus is there in the den with you, I think he's going to spend the evening talking to Jesus. Just in your sanctified imagination, put yourself in this story. As you're thrown into this den and the stone is rolled over and it's darkness and you just hear the roaring of the lions, first fear, first, well, this is it. It was a good life. I'm 80 years old. I had a great time. I glorified the Lord and now it's my time to go home. Secondly, shock and surprise when you're not instantly eaten. Third, if it is the angel of the Lord showing up, if it's Jesus himself and there's this glorious glow in this cave of the glory of God being seen, maybe just uh, a little bit of blinking in the, in the glory from the contrast of the darkness of that cave to the glory of Jesus being seen, maybe looking at the lions just circling around them, maybe the lions are super happy, maybe they're angry that they can't eat Daniel, but God's saying, no, you can't. We don't know. Do you think Daniel kept looking at the lions, talking to Jesus? Thank you so much, just I'm thankful. Can you tell me a little bit about creation? Because I would love to... Do you think think he... Just stop worrying. If you're here, I don't have to worry. Do you think that... He said, I just want to talk. I want to to ask questions. I want to know what's going on. And and Jesus said, you can sleep. I'll keep watch. I'll protect you. You don't have to be afraid. Whatever it is... Similar to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I bet when that rope is dropped down for Daniel and they're going to pick him up out of the lion's den, I just have to believe that he holds on to that rope and before he gets on and is taken out, he just looks around in that den. Maybe Jesus is still there. And he says, do I have to go? I'd rather be in a place of absolute horror and being terrified in this place of danger 
than to be taken out away from the presence of God. I want to be with Jesus no matter what. I want to be with him. No other details are given about Daniel's experience except for verse 22. God has shut the lion's mouths and they have not harmed me. And then he says this. He says, Inasmuch as I was found innocent before him, and also toward you, O king, I have done no harm. He placed his trust in God alone for salvation, and therefore he is saying, I am not guilty of doing anything that would take me away from God. He's not declaring that he's innocent of sin, that he has done nothing wrong in his life. He's saying, I was above reproach. What these evil men said was something that I had done was wrong. It's not wrong at all. I haven't done anything wrong. I didn't do anything wrong before God. I obeyed him. I didn't do anything wrong before you. I obeyed you. Remember the nobles had said, this man is trying to kick against you and your laws. And he's saying, no, I wasn't. And God has delivered me. That's why I say, if you want to live as an alien and a stranger in this world, trust God's deliverance. Trust in God to deliver. Hebrews chapter 11 refers to this moment and says that God shuts the mouths of lions. But God doesn't always close the mouth of lions. He also allows people to die. He allows people to be tortured. In that list in Hebrews 11, in that hall of fame of faith chapter, we have Daniel put on display as a man of faith, trusting the Lord and God protecting him. And then we have Isaiah who was sawn in two. God calls some to be victorious by living and others to be victorious by dying. But the bottom line is Daniel didn't trust in the nobles and the princes. He didn't trust in the king. He placed his trust in God alone for salvation. Even if he were to die, God would still deliver him. That's the kind of deliverance that Darius could never do. I think the point here is don't put your trust in any human. Jonah was right when he said salvation is of the Lord alone. Daniel has shown us in this chapter that King Darius is completely unable to help Daniel. And we need to understand this. We need to understand this. So often I hear Christians that say, if only we get the right politicians in office, we'll be okay. If only we get the right political leaders, then things will be okay. Daniel is telling us that even if a politician likes us and even agrees with us and even is on our side, just like Darius was for Daniel, they may still be completely unable to help us. And Dale Ralph Davis says, you may have rulers or others in high places who are well disposed towards you, but don't rest in them as a trump card, for even they, for all of their apparent power, can prove as helpless as Samson without hair. So where do we place our hope and where do we place our trust? Matthew Henry puts it this way. We must repose an entire confidence in the wisdom, power, and goodness of God, assuring ourselves of the extent of his providence to all the creatures and their actions. We must, therefore, trust in the Lord with all of our heart. We must believe that he is able to do what he will, wise to do what is best, and good according to his promise to do what is best for us if we would love him and serve him. We must, with an entire submission and satisfaction, depend upon him to perform all things for us and not lean on our own understanding as if we could, by any forecast of our own, without God, help ourselves and bring our affairs to a good issue. Those who note themselves cannot but find their own understanding to be a broken reed, which, if they lean to, will certainly fail them. 
In all of our conduct, we must be diffident of our own judgment and confident of God's power, wisdom, and goodness, and therefore must follow providence and never force it. That often proves best, which, least, which was least our own doing. Trust God. Trust the Lord. After Daniel says these things, the king is greatly pleased, verse 23, and says for Daniel to be taken up out of the den, removed, and Daniel's taken up, and no harm whatsoever is found on him because he had believed in his God. No harm is found on him. That's not so for the conspirators. In verse 24, we find out their end. The king said the word. They brought those men who had brought charges against Daniel, and they cast them, their children, and their wives into the lion's den. Now, as we read that, we say, that doesn't sound just. That doesn't sound fair. And I would agree with that. It's not fair. It's unjust. This is not God's law. This is Persia's law. If somebody was guilty of treason in Persia, then their whole family would be killed. Herodotus tells us this. Herodotus tells us that Persian law, if you were found guilty of treason, then you were killed. But because they wanted to make sure that if uh, the person convicted of treason was executed, then maybe his son or his daughter grows up and says, oh, my, my, my dad shouldn't have been executed, and therefore I'm going to go after the king and try to kill him as well. No, we have to snuff this out completely and kill every single person related to the perpetrator. That's not God's law. God's law is Deuteronomy 24, 16. The soul who sins shall die. If you sin, you will die. If you didn't sin, you're not going to die. That's why in the book of Numbers, when the people of Israel are wandering around because of their sin of grumbling, complaining, and not trusting the Lord, God says, you're going to die. You're not going to inherit this land. But the next generation after you, the young kids that are coming up behind you, they didn't sin that way. And so they're going to get the land. If you're like me, you read that, you hear that, and you go, okay, time out. There's one passage that I have a question on, and it's Achan. Remember, Achan stole, uh, hid in the battle of Ai, hid, hid stuff in his tent, or the battle of Jericho, and hid stuff in his tent. And that's why they didn't, got defeated in Ai. And then when Joshua finds out, he kills Achan and his whole family. What about them? I think that because God is a just God, because Deuteronomy 24, 16 is a true passage written before Joshua happens, Joshua's following the law, then there has to be some way, shape, or form that Achan's family knew about what was going on, knew about the conspiracy, and bought into it. This is Persia's law, not God's law. God is a fair and just God. Proverbs 11, verse 8. The righteous are delivered from trouble, but the wicked take their place. That's exactly what's happening here. It's very fascinating, even in the wording the crime in verse 24, the charges that are brought against these conspirators. Uh, let me read it for you in Aramaic. Literally in Aramaic, it's, they brought those men who had eaten in pieces Daniel. So those men who had chewed on and eaten in pieces Daniel, tried to eat him up and destroy him, were going to be eaten up and destroyed in the lion's den. Such beautiful uh, imagery that's given to us in this book. As one Author has said, those who dig a pit for others usually wind up in the pit themselves. That's what's happening here. And just look at how devastating their sin was. The entire family ends up dying because of this. I like to say a lot at CBC that sin always has a splash zone. You've been to some amusement park like a SeaWorld or something like that where you have a, 
a water ride or you have uh, dolphins that are jumping around and they always have those benches right in the front of that show and they're usually colored blue and it says splash zone and if you sit here you will get wet. So too, our sin always has a splash zone. The people around us are affected even if they don't know what you've done. Sin is devastating and it always has a splash zone. They're thrown in, middle of verse 24, and they hadn't even reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all of their bones. This is to prove uh, that it wasn't because the lions weren't hungry that Daniel survived. The lions caught them in midair. This is like Jurassic Park type stuff, right? They're catching them in the midair, ripping them apart, throwing them to each other. They don't even hit the ground and they're eaten. This teaches us a very sobering principle. God loves to deliver. He loves to deliver. He is a delivering God. But always attached to deliverance is destruction. God loves to deliver. And always with his deliverance comes destruction. Just think about Noah. Noah and the ark and the flood. God delivered Noah and his family. And in doing so, destroyed the rest of the world. With the Red Sea, he allows Israel to walk through on dry land, delivering all of them and then destroying the Egyptians that followed. With the lion's den, he delivers Daniel and destroys all of his enemies. And he'll do that on the last day as we study in Revelation. When Jesus returns, he will deliver his people and destroy his enemies. I love the way Isaiah puts it in Isaiah 54, verses 15 through 17. If anyone fiercely assails you, it will not be from me. Whoever assails you will fall because of you. Behold, I have, myself have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and brings out a weapon for its work. I have created the destroyer to ruin. No weapon that is formed against you will prosper. and Every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their vindication is from me. I think that that passage has a near and far uh, interpretation and understanding of that given to Israel specifically in that moment to say, you're not going to lose in this battle. But I think it has an implication for you and for me as well that God will always vindicate us, but not in some prosperity gospel sense of vindication that we're always going to win, we're never going to die, we're always going to have it happy and healthy and wealthy. No, God always vindicates his people, but just sometimes not in this life. Sometimes he vindicates you by you dying and then giving you vindication. Remember, that's what the souls before the altar of the Lord say in Revelation. When will you vindicate our, our blood? When will you go down and avenge? And God says, not yet. Meaning, it hasn't happened, but it will. That's why I say, if we are going to live like Daniel as aliens and strangers in this world, we need to trust in God's deliverance however he sees fit to do that. Maybe it's saving you from the lion's den. Maybe it's miraculously working in your life to bring you out of a circumstance that there's no way you could get out yourself. And maybe his deliverance is allowing you to die. Maybe his deliverance is allowing everything to go terribly in your life, taking you home and vindicating you on the last day. No matter what, we must trust God. That leads to our final point. Number two for this morning. Number five, if you're adding all of these up, Position yourself, if you are going to be used by God to glorify him as aliens and strangers in this world, position yourself to be used by God to glorify himself however he sees fit. Position yourself, live life in such a way, 
that you are going to be used by God to glorify him however he sees fit. Again, however he wants to glorify himself through your life, you just use your life to be glorifying to the Lord. Use everything that you have. Position yourself in any way, shape, or form that you can to bring glory to God. For Daniel, it's the deliverance that he experiences. For you and for me, maybe it's not. Maybe it's the deliverance we experience on the last day. But either way, live life in such a way where God glorifies himself through everything that you're doing as you point to him. Verse 25, Darius the king, this is in verses 25 through the end of the chapter, Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations and men of every tongue who were inhabiting all the land, may your peace abound. Listen to these words. These sound so familiar to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom men are to, be fe- men are to fear and be in dread before the God of Daniel because he's a living God. He's the living God. There it is again. He is the living God. And he endures forever. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. We just took over Babylon. Someday we're going to be out of here too. But God's kingdom will never end. His dominion will be unto the end. He saves and delivers and does signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has also saved Daniel from the power of the lions. We don't know if Cyrus is saved here. I I personally don't think he is here. Maybe he does later, but I don't think he is here. But maybe he's on that road. Maybe this is that road to redemption and salvation down the road. We don't know. But we do know that he says the praises of God before an entire watching world. This is what Psalm 102 verse 15 says. The nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will give him glory. Psalm 138 verses 4 through 5. All the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, O Lord, when they have heard of the words of your mouth. And they will sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of God. Live in such a way. Do things in your life. Position yourself in a way where you are putting yourself in a place to give God the most glory. In whatever it is you're doing. that'll take different approaches and different ways of making decisions in all of your life. There's no way that I could apply that specifically to your individual situation. But I'll just tell you one overarching philosophy that I've tried to live my life by. If I have three options, if I have three different roads, three different choices that I can choose, and they're all totally fine, they're all totally acceptable, they're all good, none of them's bad, it's just kind of a good, better, best, and I'm trying to figure out which one will I do, which will I pick. Obviously, I talk to my wife. Obviously, I talk to my family. Obviously, I talk to uh, my elder. I talk to uh, you. I talk to the church. I talk to people around me, get wisdom, speak to the Lord on this, obviously. But at the end of the day, if all of those things are done and all the counsel is given and received and I still don't know what I'm going to do and I have these perfectly good three options, I always ask the question, which is the harder road to walk? Which is the most difficult path of these three paths? Which is the hardest one to walk down? Because if I go down that road, then when I make it, God will prove himself that much more glorious in my life. If I take the easy road, depending on myself, I'm not positioning myself in a place where God gets the most glory. So if I have three options, and they're all fine, and all the counsel is the same, I turn to my wife and I say, we're going to pick the hardest, let's go. Let's go. Let's put ourselves in a position where when we get out of it, God's glorified and God is shown forth to be more amazing than anything this world has to offer. Maybe Daniel even did that. Standing at his window, 
with the decree ringing in his mind saying, okay, I could either go to my room and pray behind a closed door and God would not mind that at all. Or I could take the harder road and who knows what happens. But I get to show God to be better than life itself. That's what we need to do. That's how we need to live. And Daniel is faithful to the very end. Verse 28. So Daniel enjoyed success in the kingdom of Darius and in the kingdom of Cyrus. The Persian, we talked about that verse last week. That's something called apposition in Hebrew and Greek. That's basically saying uh, the reign of Darius, who is Cyrus the Persian. So I think it's the same. We talked about maybe it's a, a Median title versus a Persian title. I think Darius and Cyrus are the same people. But here we come to the end of chapter 6, and here's Daniel. This is the last we're going to hear of him in narrative form. We've finished half of this book, and we come to the very end of the narrative portion. Now we move to the prophetic portion of the book, chapter 7 through the end. We don't know exactly how long Daniel lived. We're told here that he's enjoying success during the, the reign of Darius. We know that he survived at least until the third year of Darius. That's mentioned in chapter 10, verse 3, which would have been the year 536 B.C., and best estimates would say that that makes Daniel 84 to 85 years old. He's faithful to the end. In old age, even to his death, because he trusts in the Lord. And as he does that, the nations notice the God of Daniel. God does miraculous things for his people, and the nations will definitely take note of that. But God also will make himself known when his people just simply live radically obedient lives unto him. Maybe you look and you say, well, nothing like this has ever happened in my life, and I don't expect it ever really will. But the nation still can notice us. The nations can notice you. The nations can notice CBC as we just simply live radically obedient lives to God and say he's better than anything this world has to offer. So this chapter has given us five ways that we are to live as aliens and strangers in this world. Number one, honor God and how we live differently than the world. Number two, understand that the world will hate you. Number three, worship God even though it will cost you. Number four, trust in God's deliverance however he sees fit. Maybe it's through you dying, maybe it's through you being saved. And number five, position yourself to be used by God to glorify him however he sees fit. Maybe that's by elevating you to some status where you are made famous in the nation, you're made famous in the world, and you're able to speak out on behalf of the glory of God. Or maybe it's you are completely unknown to anybody in the world but your church and your family and your friends. But you live a radically obedient life that everyone watching you sees, and they say, I want to follow your God. I want to follow your God. Those are the five realities that are given to us in this chapter of how we are to live as aliens and strangers in this world, as Daniel himself lived. But remember, all of these lessons are given to us by a fallible human. Daniel, though heroic in this chapter, is not the hero of the Bible. In fact, if Daniel were here today, if he is standing in this pulpit preaching this message, I think he would say, hey, here are things I did because of who God is. But I'm not the hero. My story points to the true hero. And I want to ask you, did you catch the pointers in Daniel's story? There was no one and nothing and anyone could find against Daniel. So a false accusation was created 
to ensnare him. Daniel was sentenced to die even though he was innocent. A stone was rolled over the place of his burial and sealed, and he walked out alive. There are so many similarities between the cave that Daniel's thrown into and the tomb of our Savior. There's an uncanny resemblance to Pilate sealing the tomb of Christ. There are so many pointers in this passage that show us Daniel's not the hero. Even as we sang earlier, Jesus is the true and better Adam, so too Jesus is the true and better Daniel. Where Daniel was a stranger in a foreign land, Jesus was the creator of the world and is the creator of the world, taking on the form of his creation, becoming one of us. Where Daniel was simply above reproach, Jesus is sinless. Where Daniel is preserved alive in the lion's den, Jesus was slaughtered. The same hands that held back the lion's mouth was nailed to a cross as the father did not hold back his wrath. Daniel's able to say here, I'm innocent and I have not committed a crime against you, King Darius. You and I cannot say that about the king of kings. We cannot say we are innocent and we have not committed a crime against you, O king. We deserve to be thrown, not into the lion's den, but into the den of God's righteous wrath. But instead of us being thrown in, Jesus is thrown in for us, on our behalf. And instead of God the Father protecting Jesus from his wrath, he pours all of it out on Jesus and completely satisfies his wrath by giving Jesus our penalty so that we can be freed. And therefore, just like the den becomes a place of deliverance for Daniel, so too Jesus' tomb, his den, becomes a place of deliverance for him, but not just for him, for all of us as well. Jesus is the true and better Adam. Jesus is the true and better Daniel. Jesus is Daniel's hero. And this story points to Jesus. Yes, it gives us lessons of how we can live life now, but ultimately Daniel would say, I'm not the hero of the Bible. Jesus is. And Daniel would want his story to point us to Christ. So I want to ask you this morning. Do you know the forgiveness that is found in Christ? Do you know the deliverance? Not just from a temporal trial or some affliction going on, but the deliverance from the penalty of sin, which is death. The Bible is so clear All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And the wages of our sin, what we deserve because of it, is death. Eternal separation from God forever in hell for all of eternity. But God being rich in mercy, loving us beyond anything we could possibly imagine, does not want us to die and sent his son to live in our place, to die in our place, and to rise in our place. Conquering sin and death, taking sin onto himself at the cross, his body being broken, his blood being spilled out for full forgiveness and pardon of sin so that we could then be reconciled. Do you know the forgiveness that is found in Christ? If you do, this changes everything. Whatever you're going through, however grand the trial might be, however small it might be, whatever pain you're experiencing, whatever temptation you're going through, whatever it is that life is bringing, it is coming from the hands of a God who loved 
who loves you. They are nail-pierced. They're stretched out to you, and he's allowing everything that you are going through for a reason, for your greatest good and his greatest glory. This changes your comfort, your hope, your encouragement. Just like we've seen in Ecclesiastes, this changes your expectation on what life is going to offer. And this changes your joy. I just see 85-year-old Daniel just walking around with a smile on his face, knowing, my God's the living God. He delivers me however he sees fit, and I'm just going to keep worshiping him. And that's pre-cross. How much more should we walk around with a smile on our face knowing we have been saved We've been redeemed. We've been delivered. If you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you've been delivered. If you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, just like Daniel, deliverance for those who are believers also equals destruction for those who aren't. You are in peril. John chapter 3 says that God's wrath abides on you, remains on you even now. And we're not guaranteed the remainder of this day. We could die before this day ends and we would stand before a holy and just God who demands perfection to enter into heaven. And you and I are not perfect. We have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And therefore, if you are trying to get to God on your own, you're trying to be good, do good works, try to be a better person. You might be a very nice person, but you're not perfect. And perfection is what God demands. And he made a way possible for you to be allowed into heaven through the perfection of Christ. Stop striving for perfection on your own. Give it up now. Turn from the sin that killed Jesus Christ and trust in the Savior. Follow him and let his perfection be your entrance into heaven. And let his satisfaction be your greatest joy both now and on into eternity forevermore. My prayer is that you would bow the knee to Christ this morning, whether saved and loving the Lord and following him, or here this morning that you don't know Christ and you are not saved, you don't know where you'd spend eternity if you died, my prayer is that you would bow the knee today, turn from sin today, trust in the Savior today. Do so for the sake of your soul, yes. But do so because there is no better option in the universe to be satisfied by than Jesus Christ. That's why he said in Matthew 13, if a man finds a treasure in the field that's better than anything in this world, he'll instantly go sell all he has to buy that field to get that treasure. My friends, give up everything to gain Christ. Father, we thank you so much for these verses that have brought us to a place where we bow the knee before you, where we are blown away by your deliverance. We're terrified of the reality of destruction, but we're blown away by your deliverance. Father, I pray for all of us in this room, those who are watching on live stream, those who will watch down the road. Your gospel is so clear. There is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. It is only by the work of Christ that we can be saved. We can never be good enough to gain access into heaven. But you love us, so you made a way. You don't want us to die in our sins. You made a way for us to be saved. And you are pleading with us even now to turn from sin and trust in you. And yet we, in our hardness of heart, we say, I'm going to find my own way. Father, I pray for any in this room who do not know you, any watching the live stream, any watching down the road who do not know you, 
as Lord and Savior. Maybe they know the realities about who you are. Maybe they even believe those facts are true, but they have never surrendered everything in their life to you. They have not given up sin. They have not given up even good things that they have idolized in this life. They still cling to other things but you for salvation, for satisfaction, for hope, and for joy. May today be the day that they throw it all away and they buy that field and they grab hold of that treasure and they say, I have Christ. And to live is Christ and to die is gain. And for those of us who have done that, Father, I pray that we would, we would cherish that treasure. We would hold on to Christ. That's what we get to do now with communion. That we'd hold on to Christ knowing that he's holding on to us. That whatever den of lions we might be going through, that we, like Daniel, would hear the Savior say, I'll protect you. I'm with you. Even if you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't have to be afraid because I'm here. You can rest. I'll keep watch. Father, I pray that as we celebrate the gospel, we would do so with hearts overflowing, with thanksgiving, We didn't find the treasure. You led us to it. We didn't do anything to gain the treasure. You showed us how magnificent it is, so we threw everything away to get it. And we cannot hold on and keep that treasure. We would lose it and let go of it all the time. But you have promised to keep us and to bring us safely home. And so we cling to you, however feeble that clinging is. Help us through communion now to cling to you all the more. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask the men if they would come this morning, and they're going to distribute both elements. We're going to sing a song. As they distribute these elements, just hold on to them. Don't take them yet. We will part-